jumping into chapter 3 of Jonah. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or in version, But I want to kind of set the stage and bring everyone up to speed because I know um, with everything that's going on, it's difficult sometimes to be here. But we do have our services online. They're available to you. I highly encourage you. I can't emphasize this enough, especially in this series where we've taken an extra amount of effort and time to look into the context of Jonah. I encourage you to go on to our website. If you click on the media tab, you can scroll down to past services and you can watch week one and week two of the Jonah series. And it's okay if you watch them out of order, but it will definitely help everything come together as we end this mini-series on Jonah this morning. So I I encourage you once again to do that. It's a couple of times each year that we take the opportunity to jump into one book of the Bible and do an entire message series on this one book. And, you know, we, we pull scriptures and we study scriptures from all over the Bible during the year, but it's really fun and exciting to me to just look at one book and spend an entire message series looking at all of the truths that are, that are there for us. And Pastor Josh talked last week and I was able to open up the message series in week one, two weeks ago. And during this message series, right off the bat, we had to answer some of those questions, those obvious questions that come up right away. Like the first question is, is this a real story? You know, it's okay to sometimes ask that question because the Bible is like reality TV sometimes where you're like, is this actually real? You know, in the story of a man, a grown man, a prophet of God being swallowed by a fish is a little bit kind of crazy. It sounds like a fairy tale. But we looked at Second Kings in week one, and we realized that Jonah is a real person in history. It says, Jonah, son of Amittai. He comes up previously, and then he comes up again, obviously, in Jonah as the writer sharing his story with us. He's a real person living in a real time period, called to a real place of Nineveh. And we laid the foundation for Jonah in week one of this series. We looked at the historical context, some of the geographical context. And last week, Pastor Josh helped us discover the amazing God that we serve in a new way as he provides new opportunities for us, even when we choose to get off the course of the plan for our lives. Even in our difficult circumstances, God still provides opportunities for us to come back to him. His grace never ends. His mercy never ends. Amen. In in week one, we talked about how Jonah was called to Nineveh. He decided that is not where I want to go. He, uh, you know, long story short, uh, he ends up being thrown off of a ship in a raging storm. And a fish says that God provided a fish. Instead of letting him drown, he sends this great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he stays in his belly for three days and three nights. And I talk about a rough couple of days several days for him. I can't imagine. I mean, it's bad enough for the fish having a man lodged in your stomach. You can't eat and you can't pass anything for three days. That sounds uncomfortable to me. But think about Jonah being the one trapped inside of this fish and just cannot imagine the stink. I mean, just the most uncomfortable of all places to be. And of course, he does what most of us would do. He prays. And he repents and he decides to return to the call of God. And I'm so thankful that Jonah shares his story with us. If you notice, if you notice the theme in the, in the scriptures is that the people of God who get the most airtime are the people who mess up the most. And that's comforting to me because I've messed up a lot. I've, I've been alive for 30 years now and I've spent 30 years messing up. 
I've spent 30 years trial and error. I've, I've said and done a lot of stupid things. And I'm thankful that like most women, my wife has a fantastic memory and is willing and capable of recalling any of those moments when I need good sermon material. Amen? So it's so good to know that a lot of what I have to teach and to share, it, like Jonah, is my, my mishaps. Moments where I miss the mark. Moments where I questioned God, I doubted God. Moments where I was struggling to understand the will of God. But I'm so thankful to know that God still keeps his hand on our lives. And he still chases after us and continues to pursue us. I'm so thankful for that. Amen. So I want to recap a little bit geographically for those of you who haven't been with us the last two weeks, and then we'll dive right into chapter three. The first thing I want to do is I want to take us to this geographical context, this map that we have. Can you bring up my first slide? I'm not sure why this is not working. Probably because I don't have it on. So the first thing is (laughs) it, it helps. It helps, TJ. I appreciate that. So the first thing we see is that Jonah is called to Nineveh, which is 650 miles walking distance from where he receives the call of God. And that's a long distance to go, but it's not the distance that scares Jonah. It's the place of Nineveh, I think, that freaks him out. And it's whether or not maybe he's scared or he just maybe doesn't really care for the people of Nineveh. As we find out, he decides to go, get on a boat, and go as far away as he possibly can to a place called Tarshish, 2,800 miles away. And while he's there is where God gets a hold of him and and explains that I have a plan for you, and it doesn't involve you hanging out on the southern tip of Spain in a resort destination. I've got work for you to do. So he gets swallowed by the fish, and then, of course, we see that it's about 430 miles from the shortest point, and we don't know exactly where Jonah was spit up onto dry ground, but let's say it was here, 430 miles. He has another long journey ahead of him to go and to finish out the work of God. So he's called, he runs, he repents, and now he returns, and we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time and said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. This is a big place. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, he dressed himself in burlap, and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent out this decree throughout the entire city. No one... Not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. And we know historically that Nineveh was known for their brutality and their violence. The king recognizes that this has got to stop if we are going to find salvation. He continues, the king, who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Capital G, God, there means he is calling on the God of Jonah. Yet God will change his mind 
and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he threatened. So here we have the prophet Jonah called by God, giving what is seemingly a half-hearted word of the Lord. In English, in most of our translations, it's eight words. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. In the Hebrew, it's five words. But regardless of how many words he actually said, or if he's paraphrasing here and he actually said more, this is a massive revival. Surprisingly enough, Jonah doesn't respond the way most pastors, most evangelists, most church leaders would respond. Having been called to a city, you read an eight-word sermon and the entire city comes to know your God. I mean, you would think this would be a party going on. You would think he would be like, I only said eight. Man, I must be really anointed. Eight words. That's pretty good. It's my shortest sermon ever and my most effective. I'm going to make sure I use that one somewhere else. I mean, this is amazing. It's not just one church or in one area of the city. It's the entire city. It reaches all the way to the king and his nobles to where they tell everyone, we're going to repent and turn back to the Lord. It's just surprising to me the way Jonah responds. And we'll see in a moment here. But Jonah knows the God that he serves. He knows that this is within God's character to do something like this. Proverbs 28 verse 13 It says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Jonah knows this. We know this too. Jesus tells us and his disciples tell us later in the New Testament. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. This is the God that we serve. Jonah knows the God who has called him to Nineveh, knows that he's capable of this. And God relents because of their repentance. He relents from sending calamity and the destruction comes to a screeching halt. And Jonah knows that he's partly responsible for helping to save this city, giving them a second chance of life. And it says, the Bible says he gets angry, angry. We pick up in chapter four. It says that this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. He's furious. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. He'd rather die then see the response that he's witnessing. Massive revival. Everyone is coming to know the God that he serves and he's mad. It's difficult really for us to understand this and we're quick to get kind of, we, we, we want to jump on Jonah and kind of say, man, dude, this is, this is not the way to respond to something like this. But Let's just take another step back and kind of look at the panoramic view here. Jonah had just ran from God, went through a hurricane-type storm, thrown into the ocean, willing to accept death, gets swallowed by a fish. I mean, this is a traumatic experience. He's in a fish for three days. He gets thrown up onto the beach and then has to walk 430 miles 
to the place God called him to. This is a traumatic experience, and we can't really quite imagine what it would have been like to be Jonah. We, as Americans, we get ticked off and furious when they mess up our order at McDonald's, right? We get just as angry if we have to wait more than 15 minutes at Starbucks, right? You telling me I have to wear a mask to go in there? Are you kidding me? Like, we get upset over things way before something like this. And here, we're eager, at least I am, I'm too quick to be hard on Jonah. But this is a classic case of pride. The way I see this is it's pride that has entered Jonah's heart. And it's quite possible that the people of Nineveh, because of their brutality and their military oppression, could have, it's very likely, they could have oppressed Jonah, especially his ancestors. Now, there's no proof in the text, but some scholars, they think it's possible that the ancestors of Jonah would have been killed and the responsible individuals could be living in Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire. This is possible. Imagine being called to a city where you have a, you despise these people. You hate these people. And God says, those are the people I want you to go to and to give them a word from the Lord. So he says, okay, hoping that the word comes true, which is destruction. Jonah, along with everyone else in that known world, would have been happy to see a violent violent people wiped off the face of the earth. And now Jonah is looking in the mirror saying, you're responsible for saving. You are partly responsible for bringing this word. This is a classic case of pride. And this is true for all of us. Worldly pride blocks godly perspective. And Jonah 4.4 says that the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? I mean, he just asked a simple, simple question. Is it right for you to be angry. And Jonah gives him the silent treatment. Worldly pride blocks godly perspective. I find it interesting that Jonah says nothing. He's so mad that even when God questions his anger, he doesn't say, Jonah, you shouldn't be angry. He just says, okay, you're angry, but is your anger right? And Jonah here in this moment, he does not see the big picture. He only sees the violent nation that was on the brink of destruction, and now he helped save them. And God changed his mind. It's been a roller coaster of emotions for Jonah. And he's mad. He's mad. He would rather see these people, he would rather die than see these people live for God. I, I, can you imagine hating someone so much? Can you imagine being so, your heart being so hardened towards someone? See, God here is wanting to show them compassion, but Jonah is struggling with selfishness. Have you ever been there? Have you ever failed to see the big picture? I know for me, for those of you who know me, you know that I am very competitive, okay? I, no, maybe a little bit competitive. I, I just, I really enjoy sports. I grew up playing sports. I grew up around sports, and it's always been a part of me, the will to win at all costs, Right? I, I can tell you this, that it doesn't matter if I'm playing in a rec league or if I, were be, I, take, I go back to like when I was playing in tournaments in high school, I play with the same level of effort. Every game is worth winning. I joke around sometimes, even when I'm playing games with my seven-year-old son, I want to beat him. I want to win the game. I don't care if you're seven, you lose, I win, ha ha, right? <laughs> you guys need to pray for me, it's bad. I just, whenever I step onto, we have a church league softball. We play in the church league and it's so much fun to play, but something happens when I 
step onto the field, it's business. I'm here to play. I'm here to win. And it's, it's a small scale compared to what Jonah's going through, but I quickly begin to miss out on the big picture and I get wrapped up in my own little world, my own little competitive world where I want to win at all costs. And anyone else who stands in my way is the enemy, right? And that's what competition does to some of us. Some of you who aren't competitive, you look at us like, there's something wrong with that guy. But it's just, it's one example on a small scale of what it would look like for Jonah to have to take a step back and he's consumed by his anger. And yet God wants him to take a step back and just look at the big picture and to understand, Jonah, your pride is getting in the way of a godly perspective. Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. In this moment, Jonah has not yet chosen to be humble, to humble himself, to be able to, to receive the wisdom, to see the big picture. And again, God is ready for compassion. And Jonah is far from compassion, as far as you can be. He's wrapped up in his own selfishness. And it begs the question for you and I, thousands of years later, here we are. Are we hoarding God's love? Is there anyone in our life that we're being selfish with the most unselfish gift of all time? The Bible says, no love hath any, no greater love hath any man than this, that he lay his life down for his friend. The gift of eternal life the free gift of eternal life. Are we holding on to that, assuming that it is for us, willing and available, but there's someone in our life that is just too far gone, someone that is just too violent, too nasty, that they don't deserve the gift? Psalm 145 says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. All of God's creation belongs to him and he cares deeply for it all. Do we care for it all? Do we care and have concern for all of God's creation or do we just care for the people who look like us, vote like us, act like us, worship the same God as us? We pick up in verse five of chapter four. It says, then Jonah, notice here, he has not answered God's question. He's giving God the silent treatment. It says, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter. He's making a statement here to God. He goes east, which is a biblical representation in this context of rebellion. He's going east and he chooses to make a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. I wonder if he's got a little glimmer of hope here. Maybe God will change his mind again, and I'll see these people destroyed. The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun, and this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So it's been a roller coaster ride of emotions for Jonah. He's mad, and he's sad, and then he runs, and then he repents, and then he's able to give a word of the Lord and then he's angry and then now he's grateful. Can anybody relate with these attitudes, these mood swings? I heard one preacher say it this way. He's got a classic case of PMS, prophetic mood swings. <laughs> Makes sense. 
There's no other way to describe it. He is having a prophetic mood swing once again, and he's grateful now for this plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm had ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. This is interesting because at this, in this area, any wind from the east would bring rain. Every time it would bring rain. But God's turning up the heat on Jonah here and it brings scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this. Then God said to Jonah, once again, same question, once an answer, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Doesn't get angry with Jonah, just gently asks another question. Is it right for you to be angry that the plant died? This time Jonah speaks up. It's hot. The sun is baking. His little plant that he got attached to is gone and he's mad again. Yes, Jonah retorted, I'm even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people, not plants, Jonah, people living in spiritual darkness. One translation says that They are living in a time, they're living in a place where they don't know their right hand from their left. They're caught up in a system, Jonah. They don't even know me. They don't know right from wrong. They think being wicked is the only way to establish their kingdom. They don't, they're lost in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals, all of my creation. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Now, I'd love it if this continued, but this is how the book of Jonah ends, with a question. I wonder how Jonah answers this question. I like to think he answers this question by the way he lived his life, but I think Jonah writes this in such a way so that we too can answer this question by the way we live our lives. I love that God meets Jonah in his misery in his pouting, his whining, his anger, his groaning and moaning, these bad attitudes, God meets him there and he speaks to him. He, he takes him on a little thought-provoking field trip and just asks questions. Is, is it right for you to be angry? You know when you're really, really mad, that's the last thing that you want is for someone to say, what's wrong? What do you always say? Nothing. Like if no one does that, if I can tell instantly when my wife gets mad, something wrong? Nope. Okay. What I do? <laughs> we all do that. We, we, and God is just saying, okay, you're angry. I'm not questioning your anger. I just want to know, do you think it's right? Do you think it's right to be angry? And it ends with a question. If you are showing pity for this plant, Shouldn't I, even more so, have compassion on 120,000 people who are in utter darkness? And Jonah can't see past it because of his pride, but God is calling Jonah to compassion. See, to love God, it's not just about hating what God hates. It's about loving who God loves and loving what God loves. He loves people, all people. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the world that no one should perish, not so that no American should perish, so that no human being should ever perish, but to have eternal life. This is the compassion of our father in heaven. I remember dating Becca before we got married and I think it was one of our very first dates because we had hung out at church a few times. We had hung out at Connect Group a couple of times and then she invited me to a cookout. I think it was on the 4th of July and her whole family was there. Guys, I met her whole family there and we had barely really known each other and it was awesome because I got to see how connected she was to her family. And I remember getting to a point where I was, you know, getting along with them and I was connecting with them because they're a lot like my family, getting to know them. And it was great and it was fun. But I eventually got to a point where I told Becca, I said, hey, I want, I like getting to know your family, but I want to get to know you, little lady. I I want to take you out. I want it to just be us. And so we would drive out into the country and we'd have these romantic dates and and we would go to a special spot. You could see the sunset and we would talk and we would just have a fantastic time getting to know each other. And it was wonderful. But I began to realize part of getting to know her and to love her was learning to love what she loved, learning to love who she loved. And I noticed the more connected I became to her family, the more close I became with her parents and with her brothers and sisters, the closer we became. And that's the relationship that we have with our father. He wants us to not just love him, but to love who he loves. And and we love who he loves our love for him grows more and more. See, compassion requires thoughtfulness. We need to remove our selfish pride, our self-righteous spirits, our self-absorbed attitudes, and allow the Holy Spirit to ask the question, am I right to be angry? Am I right to feel this way? Emotions are a good thing. They tell us that something's off, something's wrong. But when we don't ask those questions and we don't allow the Holy Spirit in our lives to question why we feel the way we feel, and we don't take the time to be thoughtful, we'll never reach compassion. And compassion also produces miracles. We get to be a part of miracles when we choose to be compassionate. And it's a beautiful thing that Jesus invites his disciples into. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, as soon as Jesus heard the news, which was that his cousin, his best pal, John the Baptist, had just lost his life. So when Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone, to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed him on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he told him, get away from me because I want to be alone. No, he said, I have compassion on them. It says that he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And that evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that the disciples take part in a miracle. 5,000 men, not to mention the women and children that may have been there as well. Let's just say it was 5,000. Maybe we can just say it was five. 
because either way, the only food that they had between all of them was enough to feed a little, a little kid. I've got little kids. They eat like birds, right? Like, are you seriously not going to finish that? You took two bites. Enough food for a little kid, and they end up feeding multitudes of people. It's a miracle. And Jesus said, you feed them. He's inviting them to be part of a miracle, to have compassion the way he had compassion. And he extends this same invitation to each and every one of us in this room. All of us are invited to be part of a miracle when we choose compassion. So I want to close this message with four ways that we can cultivate compassion in our faith journey. The first thing is to practice sympathy. I use the word practice here because as Americans living in 2020, there are so many distractions that it's easy to skip over sympathy. When something happens, it's let's go cook some comfort food and let's watch some Netflix and we'll forget about it. Something sad happens. We don't, we don't want to stay there. We want to move on. We want to distract ourselves. We don't want to sit there. And of course, no one wants to sit and wallow in their self-pity. But when something happens to a friend, to a family member, let's not rush them through it. When it's an opportunity, perhaps, to be a catalyst moment to share compassion on somebody's life and introduce them to your God. Practicing sympathy. My wife laughs at me a lot because when we're watching movies, I'm usually the first one to cry. I can't stand sad movies. If we're flipping through the movies and she's, how about this one? I'm like, is it sad? Yeah, probably. I don't want to watch it. I want, I want to watch. We're all, I think many of us are this way where we don't want to look at things that are sad. When the commercial comes on and they're playing in the arms of an angel and you see a little puppy and it looks like it's being abused, we flip the channel because like, that is sad. I'm not looking at that. I do not want to feel sympathy, right? It's not an emotion that we seek. But Jesus paused. He gets off of a boat. He wants to go be alone, but he tells us, we got to be willing to just pause and say, okay, what do you need? I want to have compassion on you in this moment. Without pausing for just a moment to show sympathy, we can quickly brush off those opportunities to share compassion. So we have to get in the practice of sympathy. 1 Peter 3.8, Peter's encouraging the church. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He wants us to be there for one another, to feel in the pain with one another, to step into someone's life and not just try to help them ignore the issue, but to, to walk through life with them, to weep with them, to rejoice with them. The second thing we can do to cultivate compassion is to process with empathy. As we go through life with these individuals that God has ordained to be in our lives, we can process these emotions with empathy. Choosing to have empathy is the difference between realizing that they are in pain and reacting to their pain. Empathy says, I don't want to just know you're in pain, but I want to actually step into your 
shoes. I want to feel what you're feeling. I don't want to just know how it's affecting me, but I want to know how it is personally affecting you because then you are able to respond in the correct way. You know, when a first responder arrives on the scene, they do what's called a, an assessment. They want to know where it's hurting, what the issue is. They, they have notepads. They're taking down questions. They're memorizing how many times you're breathing per minute. They're doing all of these things because they want to diagnose the issue. They want to get to the root of the cause. And many times, I think as God's people, we have opportunities. God, I just, I want to do, I want to do your will. I want to, I want to be your hands and feet. But yet when something happens around us, we're just like, not my problem. And we move on. And if we would take a moment to sympathize and then put ourselves in their shoes, I wonder if in that moment, that's exactly where God has wanted us to step in and minister to one of his children. Practicing sympathy. This is, this is heavy stuff, but we practice sympathy and we process with empathy. And this is how we are like the God we serve. Matthew chapter seven, verse 12 says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. It's the golden rule. It's, it's the scripture that we have been taught since we were children. Some of us learned it in school and didn't even know it came from the Bible. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That is empathy. It puts us in their perspective. And it's much deeper than just concern. It's a desire to understand. So we practice sympathy, we process with empathy, and we proceed then with prayer. Prayer is what invites not just us into the situation, but now we are inviting God, the one we represent, into the situation. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where real life change begins to happen because now God has done a work in us and now he wants to do a work through us. And when we pray, we are asking God to step in and intervene on this person's behalf. Prayer should never be a last resort. I'm so guilty of saying things like, well, I guess now all we can do is pray. I guess that's all we can do is just pray. Well, sure, we should be actively involving ourselves. We want to be part of the solution. But the last thing isn't prayer. It should be one of our immediate responses. To feel the pain, to try to understand the pain and the circumstance, and then invite God into the situation and proceed with prayer. The disciples recognized how important prayer was. They actually asked Jesus, Jesus, can you teach us? to pray the way that you pray. Luke chapter 11 says that it, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he sees that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Many of you know this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Again, right there's compassion. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This technically could be called not the Lord's prayer, but the disciples prayer. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can do what, what I did years ago professor at Bible college told me you should write your name in there where it says the Lord's prayer and put Corey's prayer because this is the prayer that God wants you to pray 
And it's not just something you repeat, although there's nothing wrong with that. But this is the formula. This is the outline that God told his disciples. When you pray, pray like this. Invite God's kingdom into your life and ask that God would carry that, that you would be able to carry that kingdom with you everywhere you go. Open and willing to forgive, quick to forgive, quick to show compassion. When someone is indebted to you, ask God every single day, God, help me to forgive those who are indebted to me. Help me to have the same love and care and compassion on those people that you have for me. We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray so that God can change our hearts, so that God can turn us to the plan, to the course of action that he has for us. And the fourth thing we can do, and it is a privilege and an honor to be able to then to go and to proclaim his mercy. Because we are not God's delivery men and women of judgment. It's difficult for me to represent a Christian family, capital C church, global church, to people who don't know God and they often reply to me in conversation saying, yeah, we already know what you Christians are against. You don't have to tell us anymore. We see your protests, we see your anger, we see your rage. What would happen if our church, capital C church, global church, began to be known as a family based on who we are for, what we are for, not defined by what we are against? Because our God is for people. Not just people like us, all people. We can't forget what God's mercy has done for us and take it for granted and assume that it was for me, but it may not be for everyone. To love God is to love who he loves. James chapter two says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful because mercy triumphs over judgment. Everyone say, mercy triumphs. Don't forget about God's mercy in your life. Reflect on what it would be like if God had not stepped into time from a perfect and pure heaven. He waded into our sin, waded into darkness and chaos to pay the ultimate price to set us free. And I think in Jonah, he's foreshadowing the exact opposite response that Jonah had. He's foreshadowing what God will do one day. Jonah was willing to die rather than see people live. And God was willing to die so that we could live. And I'm so thankful that he did. Because now not only do we get to experience salvation, but we get to live out salvation now. Eternity begins now because we get to be part of a miracle by partnering with the miracle worker to bring shalom to the chaos of life by practicing sympathy, processing with empathy, to proceed with prayer and then proclaim his mercy.